Hello and welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement and military technology. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, NAMO. I'm your host, Richard Thomas, Senior Editor Naval, and on the show this week we speak to Northrop Grumman about the future of satellite servicing. And I talk to one of our senior analysts about main battle tanks. But first, some news. The Japan Ground Self-Defence Force has halved the number of tanks and artillery pieces in its inventory, but it is still investing in replacement capabilities. In its latest draft defence budget, Tokyo intends to order 33 more Type 16 manoeuvre combat vehicles, 12 more Type 10 main battle tanks, and 7 additional Type 19 truck-mounted howitzers. US Special Operations Command is seeking an industry partner to help it develop a new counter-US family of systems. US SOCOM expects to receive white papers by the third quarter of this year, with a contract award to follow in early 2021. Boeing and Lockheed Martin are to upgrade 43 Apache AH-64D attack helicopters for Egypt to the AH-64E standard in an FMS deal worth an estimated $2.3 billion. In November 2018, the State Department approved the sale of 10 new AH-64Es to Egypt in order to combat terrorist groups active in the Sinai Peninsula. But Apache sales to the North African country are a contentious issue for Israel and human rights groups. In Australia, the Army has selected a winning platform for its small UES Plus project, and it has also narrowed down the shortlist for its replacement tactical UAV program to four contenders. The winner of the SUAS Plus requirement is the Skylark from Elbit Systems, while the runners and the riders on the replacement tactical UAV are in situ Pacific, Lidos Australia, Raytheon Australia, and Textron Systems Australia. The winner may be announced in late 2021, although there is every chance that COVID-19 could lead to delays. In the naval domain, the EU's new maritime security mission to the Mediterranean, Operation Irini, faces potential issues as Malta continues to hold up crucial funding amid concerns that the deployment could push migrants towards the island in a bid to circumvent naval vessels deployed to the region in support of the UN arms embargo on Libya. The first warship from France's Marine Nationale arrived on station this week. And a friendly fire incident on the 10th of May involving two Iranian Navy vessels in the Gulf of Oman left at least 19 sailors dead and 15 injured, according to the state-run Iranian news agency IRNA. Other news sources covering the accident reported that the Iranian Navy support ship Konarak was hit by an anti-ship missile fired by the frigate Jamaran during an exercise. An investigation has begun into the incident near the Iranian port of Jask, but as yet there is no official confirmation of the extent of the damage to the ship However, broadcast and satellite imagery indicate extensive damage to the vessel's superstructure. To discuss this and more, I am joined by air editor Tim Martin and land reporter Flavek Magos Pereira. Hi both. Hi Rich. Hello. So both, just first off, uh, if I can get some quick thoughts about this this, uh, Iranian naval accident. Yeah, so I'll kick off maybe. Um, Yeah, I think unfortunately the anti-ship missile misfire um, follows in the wake, of course, of the Iranian air defenders mistakenly shooting down a Boeing 737 rather airliner in January. Um, And of course that incident arose from kind of high tensions between Iran and the US following the assassination of Major General Qasem Soleimani. Mm. Um, I think my takeaway really on it would be that um, if our defenders and sailors are are not properly trained with the equipment, you know, under their charge, uh, which is, you know, seems to be fairly obvious, um, that concern is going to really grow here um, from the US side um, as to the unpredictability uh, of 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 what might happen in the future, given that uh, there is uh, an expectation that there may be uh, further retaliations um, for the for the assassination of, of Soleimani um, to come further down the line. Um, but as I think as we've heard previously from independent consultants, I think um, the the reasons that we haven't seen uh, other incidents in terms of the retaliation itself uh, is mainly down to to COVID nineteen uh, issues. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that would, uh, in a nutshell, be, be, be my take on it, Rich. Flavia, you mentioned to me off air that you think there's, there's an issue with command and control as well. Yeah, I think I think we can't discard this possibility because uh, there there were two uh, cases, and these cases uh, they they raise many questions about the command and control capacity of the Iranian armed forces. I think mistakes can happen in armed forces. It doesn't matter the country, mm. but uh, I think these two these two cases shed lights on the Iranian capacity. I just think. Um, no one is immune to yeah. 
to have a friend fl- friendly fire and incidents. But uh, I think the Iranian mistakes are custom lives and many lives. Yeah, indeed. Thanks, Beth. Good thoughts. Uh, so, Tim, yeah, you attended a briefing recently on Boeing's ongoing Apache program and found out something about possible delays to the H-64 deliveries to the UK. What more can you can, can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. So, um, previously, uh, Boeing had disclosed the fact that uh, the first delivery of uh, UK AH-64E, the Echo variant, um, would arrive in country on, in June 2020, which you know, is just around the corner next month, of course. Um, so, you know, when I asked just if they could can confirm that to be the case, um, they, they pretty much closed up shop and said that they, that they weren't unable now to to talk about any details of, of the, the program. Uh, and the reason for that being that uh, that was in line with a discussion um, held between Boeing and UK MOD, uh, and, and which it was made clear that... They didn't, the, the MOD, the customer, didn't want uh, any such details to, uh, to be released. Um, so I did uh, ask uh, the MOD for comment. I, I didn't receive one. So uh, unfortunately, I can't um, shed any further light on uh, on the perspective there. But uh, And I think it is, it's interesting just uh, in terms of not moving into to kind of speculative kind of areas of discussion but it's interesting that that you know there's there's a, a very clear u-turn uh on this um so we'll, we'll wait and see if you know next month lo and behold there is a first delivery of the of the new uh apache the re- remanufactured echo variants that are under contract 50 of which uh the uk mod have signed up for and of course they'll be the the largest international uh, operator of of the the Apache Echo variant. So um, big business um, for for both sides and clearly um, you know Boeing don't want to step on any toes. And uh, as we we know with these things, it's uh, it's the privilege of the customer to to kind of uh, explain themselves. Perhaps so understandable from, sure. from Boeing. Um, sure. Is, is there any in, uh, indication as to any timeline slippage, or is is that still set? Good question. Um, as regards uh, international orders, Boeing say that they're maintaining deliveries at uh, the massive production line, unlike the, the Chinook production line uh, in uh, Philadelphia, hasn't uh, been shut down for, for any period of time. Uh, and uh, on the mass uh, production front as well, they're also um, manufacturing, using additive uh, uh, manufacturing to, to produce uh, PPE materials. So uh, very, very much, uh, very much a sense from Boeing that uh, there's nothing untoward, mm-hmm. um, and and of course, as you mentioned, even in the in the news roundup, there's a there's been a deal with Egypt for uh, new echo variants um, to to be contracted um, or a contractor ha- has been in place. You know, so business is is pretty much booming. Boeing also said that the the production rates uh, would be over a hundred uh, by the end of the year, which um, going off previous years uh, would indicate that that's uh, a fairly significant rise. Um, but that's also in, in line with, with company expectations. So I think generally speaking, it's probably, it's, you know, it's uh, in terms of production and, and the international health of the the Apache business is fairly strong at the moment. And, you know, reading between the lines, as I said, there doesn't seem to be too much untoward, generally speaking. But whether that is uh, the same for the UK MOD or whether priorities have changed, uh, that certainly remains to be be seen. And the 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 older Apaches, if I can if I can use that that, that phrase, they were mm-hmm. they have been operated from uh, uh, Royal Navy vessels like HMS Ocean. Will the will the E variants? Is that right? The the, the E uh, versions variants will they be marinized yep. at all? They'll be marinized in the sense that uh, the airframe is. Uh, protected from corrosive materials and uh, sea spray and things of that nature. Um, But I did ask, for example, uh, I understand from an independent uh, source that um, Boeing had been uh, in discussions or at least there had been an idea of putting an offer on the table for Australia's ARH variant to have a fully marinized version of the Apache. And that doesn't seem to be uh, official mm. at this point and, and so I did ask if there would be a, a fully marinized variant on the table and uh, the response was that there wouldn't be any reason for that because there's a, a series of naval based capabilities already available on on the echo and um, you know for example the the targeting 
capability from the version 6, um, which hasn't been on any of the other uh, older uh, Apache variants. Uh, you know, and also increases lethality, of course. Um, so uh, a simple answer to that would be that um, there would be a, a couple of a couple of items, I guess, that would would make the Apache ideal for, um, you know, for, for naval operations. But you um, couldn't consider it, I suppose, a, a fully modernized, uh, capable uh, aircraft just yet, um, and nor will it be, I guess, for the UK MOD. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate that. That's interesting stuff. So, uh, Flavia, there's some news on the Brazilian anti-vehicle missile program that seems to finally approach the end of a test phase. Yeah, Brazilian Army is likely to conclude tests this year uh, of a, a pilot batch of its 1.21 vehicle surface-surface missile system. Uh, the system is called MSS-1.2AC, and it has been developed by the Army in a partnership, in partnership with the Brazilian company Siat, that was previously called Mectron. Uh, the MSS 1.2AC will provide enhanced protection against armored vehicles and high firepower capacity as well. Uh, it, it has a range of up to 2,000 meters and it can penetrate up to 600 millimeters of RHTA. Uh, this system will be operated by a crew of two, one gunner and one loader. This project, it begins in 1986 and the first missile launches were conducted during the 90s. A prototype was approved in 2004 after technical and operation evaluations and 40 successful launches. Flavia, sorry, just to interrupt. So that program began, not to give away my age, but I was five years old when that program began. So why is it taking so long? Yeah, to be honest, Richard, uh, political and economical changes, economic changes in Brazil affected the development of this program. Uh, I think it's interesting to highlight Brazil had a military government between 60 and 80s. And during this period, the armed forces received a lot of investments and they had big, strong, huge uh, budgets. The government in the 80s chose the, the Brazilian company Engemissil as the partner to develop this program. However, after the end, uh, after the, the military government ending, uh, there was a decrease in the investments in the armies. And this program, it was frozen. And beside this, Angel Missile in the 90s uh, went bankrupt and it delayed even more the development of this program. In 2000, uh, Brazil decided to boost its armed forces and also the national defense industry. And in this context, uh, the government invested much more in the armed forces and the development of this anti-vehicle anti missile system was resumed. Uh, I think it's interesting to, to highlight this uh, system that uh, they are testing now are quite different for, from its original design because the technology has evolved and the project has evolved as well. Well, fingers crossed the Brazilian military doesn't have to wait another couple of decades before it actually gets into service. Thanks, Flavio. Appreciate that. Thanks both. So coming up next, my interview with Sonny Butterworth on all you need to know on the current market and global market forecasts of main battle tanks. <laughs> Hey, have you been using the Defense Insight tool that we signed up to the other month? Have I? It's so useful. Being able to call up all those equipment entries and compare specs? I'm not sure how we got by without it. I know, right? But they've also just launched the Defense Insight Program Index, which is now live on the dashboard. Oh, I've been looking forward to that. This covers both the current and forecast requirements across all major platforms, right? It sure does. The dashboard now gives us access to really detailed program information including requirement data, total spending, contract award years, and first delivery year. This is great. It links suppliers, bidders, and the system being offered with direct links to the equipment entry pages. Yeah, and you can export all program and forecasting data. It's going to be so useful for that super urgent project the boss has me working on. 
Looking at wheeled armored vehicle programs over the next 10 years... For Defense Insight subscribers, the much-anticipated program index is now live on your dashboard. Covering current and forecast requirements across all major systems, the program index accounts for 80% of global defense spending. Access this latest upgrade today through Defense Insight by Shepard Media. A firm fixture in military doctrine since the Battle of Cambrai in 1917, the tank has evolved over the decades, generations and innumerable wars to be the apogee of armoured warfare. However, with ever more lethal threats being faced on the modern battlefield and tightening national budgets, what does the future hold? Well, to explore this thought, I'm joined by Sonny Butterworth, Senior Analyst Land. Sonny, hello. Hi, Richard. Sonny, you're a, a known fan of the tank, but is its day in the spotlight over? I don't think the day in the, t- the tank is over at all at the moment. Um, that's been a, a common thing um, ever since it was first conceived. But I think it's still a very useful platform that can fulfil roles that other platforms just can't at the moment, um, particularly when we look at its uh, tactical mobility, um, the level of firepower and lethality it can bring to the battlefield, and also its high level of protection. So those are the um, traditional um, areas that tanks are traditionally judged upon. but also we need to remember that they form part of a, a wider network. Um, they need to be used in conjunction with infantry, artillery, all of the sensors and C4I systems on the battlefield as well. And I think conflict has shown, even when we haven't had a, what we say as a major conventional war, which we typically associate tanks with, they've shown that they can be very useful if they're used um, in that way. But also, as we've seen Sometimes when they're used in, say, Syria, they're also exceedingly vulnerable if they're not used as part of a um, combined arms force and just sort of coordinated in in an efficient manner. But I think there's definitely still a place for tanks on the battlefield, and that's reflected in that militaries, even with very tight budgets at the moment, are still at least planning to invest resources into that capability. You mentioned tight budgets. Tanks tanks aren't cheap. Um, they they are increasingly more expensive. So how how are militaries planning to get the best capability at the best cost price? Are they are they looking to get the very best platform and gold plate it, or are there compromises that have to be made? And don't forget, these compromises will 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 create weaknesses, potential weaknesses in conflict. That's exactly right to to point out the cost there, because I think this is really a main factor in the market. Um, To answer your question, it really depends on where you look and who you consider. So if we look close to home at the moment in Western Europe, we can see that many of the the countries, Britain, France, Italy, Germany, their tank fleets are a lot smaller than what they were in the Cold War, understandably so. Um, And the way we are looking to bridge the gap before we can introduce a brand new capability, which seems to be planned at the moment for the 2030s, is to upgrade the platforms that we have at the moment. So in the UK, we have the Challenger 2's life extension program. Um, Italy has a, a program to perform a midlife upgrade on its Ariette, uh, main battle tanks, um, same with France and its Leclerc. So in Western Europe, the, the focus is very much on the, on the upgrades. And that's also the same at the moment in the US as well, where they operate a much larger tank fleet, but still the, the new main battle tank platform, which will be procured under the decisive lethality um, platform DLP program. That's very far into the future. But even if we move further across Europe, we see that in Central and Eastern Europe, where there's more of an impetus to invest in main battle tanks, their proximity to Russia um, being a prime reason for that, they tend to maintain larger fleets and are also perhaps looking to acquire new platforms much more quickly. So Poland is a good example. It's, it operates a very large tank fleet. Um, and we know that they are looking to procure a new platform to replace a lot of older Soviet um, T-72 and also the PT-91, which is a Polish um, pr- production variant, but it's based on sort of the T-72 and, and the Soviet Soviet legacy of design there. Um, but if we, if we go sort of even further afield beyond Europe, the Asia-Pacific region, for example, some countries can afford to produce their own tanks and they have the industry to, to do that. But as you said, it's a very, very costly platform to procure. So Japan has been in the news just recently with um, its 
budget for this fiscal year release. And, and when you look at the, the amount they're paying for their Type 10 main battle tanks from Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, mm. it's um, you know in the region of about 10 million per per tank if we sort of take do a crude calculation and, and just divide it by uh, you know the the budget mm. allocation by the number of tanks. Um, South Korea again can afford to produce its own own tanks and it's looking to export them to make that um, or to support that industry and make it make it easier. But for other countries which want to have tanks but don't have this defense industry. So in this region we might say Thailand or um, Pakistan, they've looked to China, which can offer um, in the case of Pakistan, it's helping them to actually establish their own um, assembly and assembly process in the uh, heavy industries taxila factory. But Thailand is pretty much buying them in a kind of military off-the-shelf way, um, which is something that's um, quite common in, in the Asia-Pacific region because even though, particularly in Southeast Asia, the terrain isn't perhaps as conducive to main battle tanks as we might think, there still seems to be quite a demand. So it's not necessarily just a case of uh, getting the gold-plated option. It really depends on, on the needs of the military and the the uh, the budget really it comes down to cost as you say but there's different ways to get around that sure can I ask about the uh, upgrade programs that various countries particularly in the West have got uh, going on so what sort of capabilities do these upgrade programs provide is it is it a very small incremental increase uh, for a legacy platform or or is let's say the challenger two if and when that platform is upgraded would it be sufficiently advanced and improved to call it a Challenger 3 at that point? I'm just trying to get an idea as to, yeah. as to, as to what kind of capabilities an upgrade provides and whether it can be considered a new tank, a fresh tank for the fleet. I think um, it's important to know that these platforms, many of them have really been in service since the 1980s and 1990s, so they've already been upgraded before, first of all. And they certainly, those upgrades do have the potential to really transform um, their potential effect on the battlefield for sure. Um, I think the current round of upgrades, particularly in Western Europe, it seems to be about bridging the gap between now, where we have a, a more assertive Russia, some might say, and the, there's been certainly more of a focus now towards um, preparing for a conventional war. So there is a there is a need to have an updated capability, but we also know that um, those countries are thinking of actually introducing a whole new platform that will really be able to take um the advantages offered by modern technology, hopefully to a new level. But that's not until the 2030s. So if we look at the Challenger 2, for example, one of the um, things that um, RBSL is offering in its upgrade package is a um, new 120mm gun, and that's going to have compatibility with um, you know, the new NATO standard ammunition as well. So um, it's also going to have, um, apparently they say, a new, a new kind of turret design. Um, it's it's things as well like um, the engine, um, the transmission. Can we make that more powerful? Can we mm. um, add new technologies for for maintenance to uh, make our smaller number of tanks able to uh, get cycled through that maintenance process much more quickly? Mm. Um, so again, Italy is, a, is another example of that. I think um, a new a new engine or an, or an upgraded uh, version of the current engine is is something that's being considered. But if we sort of look more toward the next gen of tanks might have um it's in those traditional areas it's going to be larger gun which is probably going to mean that because the rounds are so big they're going to need an auto loader mm. um, and that might mean that there's a one fewer man in the turret because there won't be a need for a loader anymore so that's going to change as well probably how turrets are designed there's going to be in terms of protection probably a need for an aps either a hard kill or a soft kill system um, this again has implications for size weight and power the the um, technologies and the, the generators, et cetera, need to be there to support that. Um, again, mobility, we're still looking, I think, um, at big, big diesel engines at the moment. Um, but we know as well from other military vehicles that there's, there's uh, developments in the kind of hybrid, um, new, new types of propulsion. But I think also we need to kind of expand what we're looking at as well and, and go back to those technology, so battle management systems, C4I, um, this is something that really allows the tank to be a force multiplier in the battlefield. And I think we're going to see much closer integration of sensors. And I think finally, autonomy, um, you know, or AI linking it up with perhaps smaller 
unmanned ground vehicles. I think in, in the US, this will be a thing with the robotic combat vehicle. There's a RCV heavy, um, and this could act in a similar way to we have the, the loyal wingman concept in the air domain where you have a smaller, maybe maybe a few smaller platforms that are linked to, to one tank and their support on it um, on the battlefield. But these are, of course, the something that's probably going to be more apparent in the next gen of tanks, if we can call it a next generation, or it, it depends really on how, how big a leap the, the technology is going to be, I think. But um, there's certainly lots to suggest that, that those are the directions it's going in, but we, they're still in the early stages, so we'll have to kind of wait and see, I think, as well. Sonny, that sounds awfully expensive, I've got to say. What about what about the, the main players in the manufacture of, of, of armoured vehicles? It's a shrinking number of companies and countries able to produce their own vehicles. So give us a list as to, as to who can do what. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, as I sort of alluded to earlier in, in Western Europe, there's lots of countries that operate their own domestically designed main battle tank, but it's in very small numbers. And the factories that produce them are probably no longer operational or no longer produce the main battle tanks. So in Europe, the dominant platform really is the, is the Leopard 2 um, mm. from Germany's uh, KMW. This is where really one of the, the few companies that still has the actual capability to manufacture new tanks, but there's also a substantial number of legacy tanks um, that they can also upgrade to new standards. So Hungary is a recent customer that's ordered new production, Leopard 2A7's latest version, but Denmark has also fairly recently taken delivery of some of its older Leopard 2s upgraded to the 2A7 standard. But you know, this, this is Europe. If we, again, widen our scope a bit and look, look outside um, to sort of the Middle East and the Asia-Pacific region, there are um, other countries that are quite focused because they have large tank fleets on allowing their local industry to benefit from this. So India is struggling to uh, produce its domestically designed Arjun main battle tank, but it's also because that's not really been a very successful program. And, you know, that's uh, kind of half of the course in India a lot of, a lot of the time. Um, they are buying kits from Russia um, to license or to assemble the T90S and now the T90MS as well. As I mentioned in, in Pakistan, that's the thing as well. Turkey is another country that's really made big strides in its defense industry, I think, in recent years. And the tank is, is on the land side, one of the, the kind of the ultimate platform to be able to produce because it is so expensive, because it is so complicated and because it can offer so much. And they have their Alte um, program, which is struggling really. And this, this is a kind of common theme. South Korea has the same problem with its K2. They're struggling with the, the power pack, the engine and transmission to get those working because they have to be quite specific components, for, you know, tailored really to tanks. Um, so that, that can be quite a considerable obstacle for those companies to overcome. But if we look, they're also trying to generate export opportunities. So there have been um, indications that Qatar, which of course has very close relations with Turkey at the moment, is looking perhaps to place an order for the Alte. We know that Oman also has a, a tender for new main battle tanks, I think 70-odd platforms at the moment. And K2, the South Korean K2, has been exhibited with kind of these modifications to make it more suitable for a desert environment. So there are um, there there are a shrinking number of players. You're right, and I think if we look to the future again in Europe, the main ground combat system, the MGCS program between France and Germany, I think a, a big question we all need to consider is, is is this really the the future of main battle tank development? Is it going to be international cooperation between multiple players, and and how is this going to work in practice? Because you know you just have to look into, into the past defence programs, and it's not just land domain; it's air and I imagine naval as well. These multinational programs are generally fraught with problems, complications. The news at the moment with the MGCS is that um, France and Germany have kind of agreed to a, a cost split and, and also that they both have the, the IP to the design as well. But if we look at other countries that might want to join that programme, so there's been indications that Poland, and I mean, we know the UK as well is probably watching it. Um, we know it, Italy has also got a requirement for a new main battle tank in the 2030 timeframe, and, and they've outlined that they want to have international cooperation because I don't think there's really a realistic way that they can probably attain it otherwise with their budgets. Well, you know, are these countries going to want to join the program if they can't get the level of industrial, local industrial participation that they necessarily want? Because they're going to want with such a large, you know, contract, they're going to want much of that value to go to the local industry if they can. So these are going to be some of the questions that or that some of the, the issues that are going to have to be navigated as, as time goes on. Yeah, indeed, these multinational programs, as we've seen from 
more recent examples in the air that they 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 can drag on, and there's always that uh, that that battle or that fight to get your share of the production uh, schedule. So so I, I, it's it sounds great in principle, having lots of interested parties mm. on board to share the load, but national interest always trumps out. So there's a a contest to be to be had there. Um, yeah. What about sadly the impact of COVID nineteen on defence procurement? It's going to hit. I can only assume every country on the on the planet, and they're going to have to look at where they can save money or cut money in order to rebuild industry to accommodate wages and things like that. So we think defence budgets, well, we know defence budgets will be hit. What about mm-hmm. main battle tank procurement plans? Will those programmes be hit by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? So as of now, I've not really seen any um, specific and definitive um, announcements that a specific program is going to encounter a substantial delay or is going to, um, you know, suffer perhaps from having smaller numbers procured because of the coronavirus pandemic. But we're still really in terms of the economic um, situation in the early stages, aren't we? And as you say, it's it's pretty clear um, that defence budgets are going to suffer as a result of that. What I think that, you know, could mean for perhaps the um, the sort of more immediate programs, the, the upgrades, is perhaps that they're um, reduced in scope, or um, you know, again, uh, pushed pushed back a little. Um, but as I also mentioned, many of the the um, programs for the new main balance science, like the MGCS, that's not until the distant future. So it's uh, it's difficult to see what effect um, these programs that are still in their very very early stages will will suffer. But if we look at the Czech Republic, which hasn't has announced that it's program for a new IFV, so not a tank, but um, you know, comparable in terms of in terms of cost. Um this this is going to perhaps be under the on, on the firing line because of COVID-19 and, and the implications of the pandemic. Well, we know that the Czech Republic also has a um desire to get rid of its last Soviet tanks and replace those. So that could well end up being pushed back quite a bit further. Or we could perhaps see countries look to operate a much smaller number of main battle tanks and perhaps um, look at a new segment of the market, which is emerging, which seems to be these, uh, what are called light or medium tanks, um, harken back to the, you know, really World War II and before. Cruiser tanks, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so this is, again, like, a, it's it's really strange because so many companies have um, demonstrated these platforms that show they're, they're marketing them. Um, but no one's really buying them. Um, even Southeast Asia, which one would think archipelagic nations where they don't have the infrastructure, they've you know got lots of islands where they need to ship these things around. You'd think maybe, well, here are countries where they're going to really buy a lot of these tanks. But Indonesia has now started producing um, a Turkish design, the uh, Kaplan medium tank. And we know the Philippines as well, after its um, experience fighting Islamic State in Marawi, has has a requirement for um, a mixture of light tanks and wheeled fire support vehicles. But the market doesn't, it seems to be more of a niche market at the moment, doesn't seem to be taken off. Perhaps if budgets become so constrained, um, more countries will perhaps consider these options. Final question from me, Sunny. Post-pandemic, hopefully, over the next 10 or 15 years, what kind of changes can we see in the market? What kind of doctrinal changes might militaries be embarking on now that could impact procurement in a decade's time? Yeah, I think the, the, the doctrine point is really important to bring out. So again, something that's been in the news recently um, is the US Marine Corps uh, deciding to divest of all its uh, M1 Abrams tanks and under its new uh, force design plan. Now, this in many ways kind of makes a lot of sense because they are trying to focus on their role of support in the Navy in in the Pacific against, of course, China. So they're rightly emphasizing more anti-ship uh, missiles and weapons. Um, they really want their force to be able to be deployed very quickly. And so tanks perhaps don't fit in so well to these, these ideas of a fast deployment. Having said that, of course, um, the downside to divesting of all your tanks is that you then lose um, the expertise, the, the experience of operating on that. And if you if you perhaps decide in the future, actually, we do need tanks again, because they, again, as I as I said earlier, they do provide a, a capability that no other platform seems quite able to match yet. Well, then you have, you've lost this, all, all this, this um, accumulated knowledge. It's gone. So that's certainly something for them to consider. And I think in Europe too, 
as I said, there's ever dwindling numbers of tanks still in operational service. It does beg the question with the cost implications that we discussed, is it worth still investing in kind of keeping these capabilities when they're so expensive and difficult to procure? Um, they're so also expensive and difficult to deploy as well and come back to the doctrine thing because, as we know, rapid reaction and uh, being able to get to the fight fast before your adversary is really um, in vogue at the moment in military thinking. So how, how can tanks really fit into this, this area? That's um, something I think that militaries really need to, to grapple with. And I think we're definitely going to see that in the future. And as I said, with the market, the ramifications, I think, are going to be probably a smaller number of platforms. So it means in Europe, at least, uh, more international cooperation is going to be required. Sonny Butterworth, Senior Analyst, Land. Thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Richard. So operators and manufacturers of satellites have always had to confront the reality that a satellite is only as usable as long as it has enough fuel to stay on orbit. A satellite may be healthy and fully operational, but it will still be retired if its fuel supply has been depleted. On average, there are about 20 satellites that reach this condition each year, and are therefore retired. Given this restriction on the longevity of satellites, there have been various efforts over the years to make satellite servicing a reality. I'm on the phone with one company that just took a giant leap in this direction with its Mission Extension Vehicle, or MEV. I'm speaking with Joe Anderson, who is VP of Business Development and Operations for Space Logistics LLC, which is a subsidiary of Northrop Grumman. So, Joe, first of all, welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting us. So, I'm... I'm actually really excited to talk about this technology. I guess my first exposure to this idea was covering the Orbital Express program back in 2007, which was a DARPA program to, well, it did a demonstration of autonomous satellite servicing. But really just to, I guess, kick things off and sort of set the scene a little for the listener, what is in-orbit satellite servicing? You know, what are we talking about here? Right, so in-orbit satellite servicing is uh, something that happens when we have a service or spacecraft that will rendezvous and attach to a client spacecraft in Earth orbit uh, for the purpose of delivering some service to the client. Um, services could be things like doing an inspection um, or control or changing the orbit of the client satellite, uh, perhaps performing repairs or adding augmentation devices to the satellite, hosted payloads, if you will, um, to, the, to the client spacecraft. Um, and as you mentioned, this, this concept has been around for, for many, many decades now. Um, but until now, no one's been able to establish a sustainable commercial business from it. We here at Northrop Grumman um, and Space Logistics have now achieved this, this historic burst in space. Uh, our initial servicing vehicle to do these types of services is called MEV, as you just mentioned. Um, so, 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 what is the background to the MEV program? How long have you guys have been working on this, and, and and what's the you know what was the aim when you sort of started down this path? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the MEV uh, here first to, to get started. So, um, as you mentioned, the MEV is Mission Extension Vehicle. Um, so, we've taken a very keep it simple approach here of a servicing spacecraft that will dock to a client spacecraft to extend its life. Um, and we stay docked for the duration of that life extension. Um, it takes over the orbit control of the client and the attitude control of the client satellite um, and remains docked for that full duration that the client needs, needs the life extension. When it's finished, it undocks and it can go on and do another service afterwards. So that's what our, our MEV is. Now, that whole concept for our MEV, for our specific application, um, really began in about 2009 um, at a company that was then called ATK, so a predecessor, one of the predecessors here from Northrop Grumman. Um, and so in 2009, we came up with that concept. We developed a laboratory to test some of the technologies that were needed for that, the rendezvous and docking technologies in particular. Um, and that progressed until... Um, about 2016, when we achieved authorization to proceed uh, following the merger of ATK with Orbital Sciences Corporation. And so the company, Orbital Sciences Corporation, fully funded internally the development, uh, all the costs for the development and launch of this first mission extension vehicle. 
Uh, we immediately afterwards signed our first contract with Intelsat for life extension, uh, for five-year life extension service. Um, and one year later, we started MEV2. So we started our second about a year later. Uh, in 2018, Orbital ATK was purchased by Northrop Grumman um, and along with it, Space Logistics. Um, and uh, just uh, late last year, uh, in October, we launched MEV1. So that's sort of the, the background of the development of MEV. So I guess not just a story of MEV, but a lot of uh, defence consolidation going on there along the way as well. Um, just to be clear, I mean, some previous programs have looked at, you know, the transfer of fuel from the host, from the servicing satellite to the to the satellite that's being kind of repaired. You guys don't do that. In order to stay on station, you're using the fuel of the MEV to keep the the satellite where it needs to be. Yes. Yeah, we specifically and very strategically took a keep it simple approach to our life extension. Uh, when we look back in time and, and you know, at the beginning of this in how others have been doing it. Um, there's been attempts to do refueling and they're still ongoing to do refueling. Um, and we felt, you know, with our knowledge of the commercial uh, customer base and how risk adverse they are, that that was one step too far on the, on the technology risk. That there are ways to do the life extension that were very adjacent in technologies using things that already existed and just re, re, repurposing those to, to, to achieve the same means of the life extension. And so our docking system, our whole life extension system, is um, really incredibly simple compared to, to something like trying to do refueling of a satellite that was not designed to be refueled. So remember here, we're trying to extend the life of satellites that have been in orbit for 15 years. They were designed... 16, 18, 20 years ago was the design, and then they were built and launched, and they've been in orbit for 15 years. So they were not designed to be refueled. They weren't even designed for us to dock to in life extent. And um, so really doing your most to keep it simple and, and reduce the complexity is really key to, to success, I think. And then I guess um, so the question uh, leaves out is, why are we talking about this today? What's the milestone that you guys recently achieved? Right. So, uh, yeah, we have uh, just achieved many historic uh, firsts in space in the last few months here. So I mentioned MEV-1 launched uh, late last year. It launched on a proton rocket back in uh, on October 9th uh, of last year. Um, we, it takes a, takes a few months for us to raise the orbit. So the launch vehicle puts us into a highly elliptic, it's called a transfer orbit. Um, and then we're going out to the geosynchronous orbit. So our service is happening out in the geosynchronous orbits, which is 22,000 miles above, above Earth. So it's, it's way out there. And for comparison, the space station's only a couple hundred miles above the Earth. But this is where the satellites are that, uh, you know, it's called geosynchronous because they go around the Earth as fast as the Earth rotates. So from a person on the Earth, that satellite appears to be stationary. So it's a very important, very special orbit. And that's where the biggest market is for these types of service. That's where most of the commercial satellites, as well as a number of, of government defense satellites, um, you know, Earth uh, observation spacecraft are, are located in that geosynchronous orbit. And so it takes us about three months, three to four months, to raise our orbit from this initial um, transfer orbit all the way out to geo. One of the important things about the geosynchronous orbit is that the satellites are out so far that at the end of their life, rather than bringing them back and burning them up in the atmosphere, we actually push them out further into a higher orbit, and it's called the, the geosynchronous graveyard orbit. And that's about 300 kilometers above the geosynchronous orbit. So for this very first rendezvous and docking, we decided uh, to do this out in, the, in that graveyard orbit just to be protective of the geosynchronous orbits. So as we were raising our orbit out to the, the graveyard orbit, Intelsat in December began to raise the orbit of their spacecraft. So it had been an operational spacecraft um, and they took it out of service. They raised it up to the graveyard orbit where we then rendezvoused uh, and docked with them in that orbit um, to extend their life. So, so a number of firsts there. This was, you know, the... The first time in history that two commercial satellites have ever docked together. It's the 
first time a rendezvous and docking has occurred in geosynchronous orbits. In the past, that has uh, typically done by NASA and others in, in low Earth orbits. Um, so that was the first thing. It was also the first time that there's ever been an autonomous docking between uh, with a satellite that was not designed to be docked to. So I mentioned this thing, satellite we docked to was designed 15, 20 years ago um, and wasn't designed to be docked to. So a, a lot of firsts happened there. Um, after we docked to them, we relocated their satellite, the InnoSat 901 satellite, to a new operating position over the Atlantic Ocean region. So it's now stationary in its new position. And Intelsat has transferred customers from, a, from an older satellite onto this satellite. And so it's now in service, providing communication services uh, to, to customers uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. So to, to Europe, to uh, North America, South America. Um, that's, that's really great. You know, really interesting to hear the number of firsts. You know, I think that really puts it into context. Um, yeah, I mean, chatting to engineers about this problem in the past, it was pretty evident that the, the rendezvous part of the, of the equation, which you sort of, you know, breezed over relatively quickly there, is incredibly complex when you talk about the distances and the, you know, the, the speed that these spacecraft are travelling at. Um, but, but what, what are the other sort of critical technologies here? I mean, I guess the, the docking part is, is, is relatively, was very critical. Solving that problem, was that sort of a key enabler? To this? Um, so, yes. So, as I mentioned, really, our strategy was to really take a keep it simple approach compared to others in the past who are trying to do robotics and do, you know, surgery internal to the spacecraft. Um, so, a number of these, these technologies, most of them existed. You know, the sensors that are needed to do rendezvous and docking existed. Um, so, so, that's not terribly new. Um, there were some new technologies there. If we had to do a specific, you know, capture mechanism that could use the features on the client satellite that existed to dock with. Uh, there's two key features there that 80% of all satellites at GEO have. It's called a liquid apogee engine and the launch adapter ring. And these features are generally on the back side of the, of the client satellite, so the anti-Earth side. Um, and they're... they're they essentially make a perfect target for us to 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 dock with. Um, you know, the liquid apogee engine. If you think of a of a of a jet nozzle, right? It's like a cone. It comes down to a little throat, and then it opens up again after the throat. Um, so we can use that as a, you know to put a probe into that liquid apogee engine. Fingers open inside the throat, kind of like a wall anchor, and then we can retract that probe. And we have some stanchions that then press up against the launch adapter ring. So we kind of clamp the two satellites together. Uh, so it's really, in the end, it's quite a simple you know, concept to do that. And it utilizes the concept that NASA's used since the 1960s when they first docked, and that's comb to capture. So I mentioned that, that nozzle, that liquid apogee engine nozzle, it's cone. And so as we put the probe into there, that cone will naturally guide our probe into the, into the throat. Um, so we use, build off a lot of historical precedents. Um, so that's really the only development there. The process for the docking is quite, quite interesting. Um, so, so the process is that, that we first, we co-locate the two satellites together. Um, so they're drifting in orbit. So they're, they're out at, you know, 22,000 miles above the earth, but they're going in the same direction, kind of like two cars going down the highway. You might be going 60 miles an hour, but be right next to each other, right? It feels like you're just looking at each other. You're pretty stationary. So we're, we're way out there. We're going quite fast, uh, but relative to each other, we're not. And, and we, what we do is as we're drifting by them, we enter their station keeping orbit we sort of circumnavigate around them as we get closer, sort of spiral in as we get closer to the client. Um, and then we come to a point that's about 80 meters behind the client, and this, the MEV will stop there at a waypoint that we call the far hold. And at that far hold point, the MEV stops. It waits for ground command to proceed on to the client. From this point on, the, the MEV is controlling itself relative to the client. So it's using these sensors I mentioned. It's got visible sensors, infrared sensors, the cameras in essence. And uh, another sensor that's called a LIDAR. It's a laser rangefinder, And um, it uses those sensors to do the relative navigation. 
So it stops at that far waypoint and it waits for ground command to go to the next waypoint. Ground gives it the command to go on. It proceeds autonomously into the near hold waypoint, which is about 20 meters right behind the client satellite. And then it stops again at 20 meters and it waits for the ground command to tell it to move on to the next waypoint. And that next waypoint is immediately behind the client, about one meter right behind that liquid apogee engine that I mentioned. Uh, And so it stops at that one meter waypoint. And again, it waits for the ground command to do the docking. And one command later, the the capture mechanism goes into the liquid apogee engine. The fingers open inside and it starts to retract and it clamps itself onto the back of the client satellite. And at that point, the MEV takes over control. So it, that, that's, it's a phenomenal thing to, to watch. I have to say being in the control center, it was, it was breathtaking. Um, as we're coming down, uh, moving from that far hold to the near hold, the, you could see the earth rising in the camera. In the, in the field of view, and it was, it was just spectacular, and you're like, can't hardly believe what you're seeing. Uh, and when they send that command to start the docking, the room was just silent <laughs> in anticipation of what's happening. Um, sure, yeah. It was quite exciting. That's great. Um, so so what, what's next for you guys? Um, you know, this is going to be, if I was the operator of a commercial geosynchronous, geostationary satellite, um, with, you know, my satellite's about to run out of fuel, you know, you'd be available to sort of to uh, take the MEV and, and put it back into service effectively. Um, so what comes next is we have a uh, MEV number two, as I mentioned, that started back in 2017, I think, time frame. Um, so MEV number two will be launching here hopefully this summer. It's, uh, it's ready to be shipped to the launch, vehicle, to the, to the launch base. The, uh, the launch, however, is being delayed because of the whole COVID uh, situation. The launch base has been shut down uh, until they're, they're ready, ready to reopen. That, that launch will be, be delayed. But uh, So we have number, number two launching later this year, and that will start a service uh, again for Intelsat. It'll go to their Intelsat 1002 spacecraft and do a five-year life extension for them. Uh, so these first two MEVs that we have will be, will be occupied for the next five years. Uh, so if someone comes to me and says, I need a service here in 2022, I, I won't have a vehicle available. They'll both be, both be occupied. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are starting to work on our next generation system as well. Um, our next generation system uh, goes a step further. Um, it includes uh, um, robotics. So on our next, uh, next system, we'll have a couple of robotic arms uh, that will be used to um, do other types of services. So uh, in addition to grabbing satellites and relocating them, we'll be able to inspect them with the robotic arms. If there's uh, a deployment like a solar array that hasn't deployed properly, we can get underneath and look and see what's holding it up. Uh, We can do repairs, maybe pry that solar array so it can release and be deployed. Um, We can also install other devices onto the spacecraft, call them augmentation devices, uh, one of the primary augmentation devices we're looking at today is called a mission extension pod. So life extension, again, is very important. I think it's a primary market for us. This will be a much smaller device than our mission extension vehicle um, that we can just install onto the liquid apogee engine, and it can provide six years of life extension to the client. And I can install many of these every year. So I could install five to six of these in a, in a given year. So that will give us much greater capability to assist other operators. And are you guys speaking to the, any military customers about this type of solution at this stage, or is it a little bit early in the, in the proof of concept to be sort of going down that, down that road? Well, we definitely wanted to start our business uh, on, um, in the commercial markets. We're a commercial servicing company, but we're offering our services to commercial operators as well as civil and, and military uh, operators alike. So we're definitely in conversations with the uh, the U.S. and in allied uh, militaries about this. There's many uh, many satellites out there that could benefit from this, and they have this similar similar docking features that, that the other satellites have. So it's it's just as applicable to their satellites as any other. Mm-hmm. That's really great. Um, I guess one of the things that's always interested me about this whole the whole satellite business, I guess, is you know how much is at stake all along the way that you spend so many millions of dollars 
developing these really exquisite, complex satellites that you're going to put in geosynchronous orbits and then expect them to be performed for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. You know, like you say, it could get into orbit and then the solar array not completely deploy. You know, there could be problems on the launch stage or getting on station. I mean, I guess it was curious, a few days ago, the Hubble's telescope celebrated 30 years since its launch. Um, and it got someone from NASA was on the BBC and I think the presenter was was trying to sort of beat the guy with the fact that, well, you've got 30-year-old technology, so how useful could it be? Um, and he made the point that the Hubble was designed from the offset to to be serviced. So it's been kind of upgraded along the way. I mean, in terms of the satellite business, you know, when when do you think we'll get to the point in the future where, you know, satellites will be designed for components to be switched out, for fuel to be replenished, you know, and for solutions like the MEV to be a whole part of the process to kind of, you know, to lo- lower risk and to, you know, change that paradigm? Oh, great question. So uh, we've actually already begun our next generation uh, system, which includes robotic arms to assist in servicing um, and adding features. Um, It can do things such as the detailed inspections, um, repairs, augmentations uh, to to client vehicles. Um, And and to do this next generation system, we've entered into a partnership uh, with the, the U.S. government defense research agency called DARPA. Uh, so DARPA will be providing the robotic systems that they've been developing over the last 10 or more years. Um, and uh, we will provide the spacecraft, the launch, the operations of the system. Um, and, and we'll use this system to do many of these, uh, you know, next generation servicing that, that I've mentioned about uh, the inspections, the repairs. Uh, augmentation is really central to this. Um, our primary augmentation mission will be the installation of mission extension pods. So carrying on the life extension uh, business that the MEV has, but doing it with a much smaller propulsion augmentation device that can be installed on the back of the client satellite, providing it five to six years of of additional life extension. Um, And and then then that would lead us into sort of the, the the next generation beyond that. So what's really key here is having persistence of robotics in space and have, once you have this persistent robotics in space, operators will begin to ask the question of how should we design our next generation spacecraft to take advantage of that persistence. Um, Our recommendation of what we think the next thing will be is to include these power data ports um, that it's kind of like a USB port on your computer. And those uh, power data ports could then be used for for um, replacing failed equipment on a spacecraft, for example, if a computer was failing or a battery was failing or a sensor was failing. Uh, rather than pulling an old unit out and putting a new one in, uh, a much simpler approach is just to plug one into one of these power data ports, plug a new unit in to replace that. It could also be used to add new payloads. So you could add new functionality. So for example, communication satellites today are C-band and KU-band. Five, 10 years from now, that market might be changing to to laser communications. So we can plug in a new laser uh, payload onto that same spacecraft, um, making it much easier to evolve your spacecraft in the future. But it all depends on this persistence of robotics. And and that's what this next generation system is. We're very excited about it. Uh, We're looking to launch this next system in the 2023 timeframe. And and it's it's an exciting time in the industry. Yeah, but I guess the MEV partly solves the problem, you know. Partly solves it. You guys, sorry, that's not to to, uh, belittle the the achievements. But it, but it, it provides that solution today, I guess. I think you're spot on, right? The MEV is an incremental step and it shows that it is possible and that there's a commercial market there that will support it. And, you know, that was a strategic decision to keep MEV simple so that we could do that. Um, that it's all about incremental technology evolution um, and, you know, coping with the risk. As you said, these satellites cost hundreds of millions of dollars and these operators don't want to take big risks. So if we can incrementally show and evolve this capability, they're much more willing to take those risks. Yeah, just from a personal note, um, I have once been to a satellite launch in French Guiana 
Um, I won't yeah. mention the company involved, but you know you could both see the tension in the control room while the mission was was underway, um, and then the the launch party afterwards when things were deemed a success. Um, I've never seen <laughs> sort of engineers party as hard. Um, that's right. I think the journalists were, were the first to go to bed. So, so I kind of appreciate, you know, um, what's at stake here and, and how complex these problems are. So, I mean, first of all, congratulations on the achievement. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, you're lucky you've, you've gotten to go to the launch site. I've, I've been involved in over 30 launches in my career. And I've always been in the satellite control center. I've never gotten to go to the launch control center. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, Joe, thanks very much for your time today. It's really interesting. You bet. Thank you for inviting us. At Shepherd Media, we understand defense and aerospace audiences and how to reach them. We've been doing that for four decades, and now you can fill the gap left by cancelled trade shows with Shepard's new Defense Audiences marketing solution. Defense Audiences aims to mitigate the lack of events by bringing innovative marketing to the forefront of the industry, allowing you to take advantage of our digital leadership to achieve your marketing goals for the year. Our Defense Audiences offering provides predefined and bespoke packages of solutions for companies looking to tell their stories and influence key defense decision makers with product launches, thought leadership, lead generation, or product education. To position your brand centrally to the defense and aerospace markets, speak to Shepherd Media about how defense audiences will help you today. This episode of the Weekly Defense Podcast was brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Namo. As always, a big thanks to everyone that took the time in being a part of the episode. And for our listeners, make sure you like and subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and tell a friend or a colleague about the podcast. Until next week, thanks for listening. Listener.